Amen and amen. This is week number three of a series we've been teaching on the book of Colossians. We've entitled this Colossians, Jesus Christ is Everything. That's really what the entire book of Colossians is about. It is really, that book is the simplest and clearest presentation of who Jesus Christ is of all of the books in the New Testament. Now, as we, uh, we covered a lot of ground last week, and I want to pick up right where we left off and just remind you uh, of a couple of things I said at the very close of the message because they were so important as it relates to a couple of the parts that we're going to be reading today. In just a moment, we're going to read some text from Colossians chapter 1, and then later we'll read uh, this morning going into chapter 2, all right? So we're going to be talking today about the supremacy of Christ. Actually, I, thought I was tempted to rename this super Jesus Christ, but I thought it might be a little cheesy. So anyway, we stuck with uh, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. All right, so uh, as I said to you last week, there were three things that you really need to that kind of focus our attention on what the dangers were going on in the church of Colossae. He wrote this letter not only to encourage the people, but also to warn them and to combat certain wrong, false teaching that was going on in that church. And it really, if you boil it all down, it was all about an effort to depreciate and to minimize the role and the place and priority of Jesus Christ in people's lives. And so these three statements, I think, are helpful for, for you to really grasp this. Number one, uh, many of these of the, who have been influenced by this wrong teaching felt that Jesus was important. How many people do you know that he, he's important to them? But maybe not essential. See the difference? There were people who said, yeah, I, I give Jesus a place in my life without recognizing that when it comes to Christ, he demands what? First place. Everybody say first place. See, many people allow Jesus to have a prominent role in their life, but certainly not a preeminent role. And all of those things go to the issue of the role and the place that Jesus Christ deserves in our lives. Now, you don't have to be subject to false teaching to fall into those errors, am I right? I mean, you don't have to, like, be Gnostic in order for those things to happen in your life. It can happen to all of us for different reasons. So let me just address three things, and, and hopefully you can read this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very clear about it. Uh, as I've told you, there's this false teaching going on in the church at Colossae. I thought it might be helpful if I just give a general overview of some of the false teaching that was common during that time. There's three facets to it, three misconceptions. You ready for these? Number one, the false teachers were teaching that God did not create the world because in their mind, anything that was natural, anything that was of matter was evil. So you can see if the world, the creation that we have that we live on, the beautiful mountains and the streams and the, and the trees and, and everything that we have in this, in this uh, created world, if it is evil, then God cannot create evil. You can see where that went wrong, can't you? Right? Number two, they believed that physical matter was evil, so they argued that God could not have come to earth in human form. If everything in this natural place is evil, then how could God come to earth in his son Jesus in human form, which the Bible teaches us, right? But that's impossible. So they were uh, promulgating that kind of false teaching. The third misconception they have is that they did not believe that Christ was the unique 
son of God. But instead, they believed that he was just one intermediary. They thought there were numerous intermediaries that you could go to to connect to God. And so that, all of those three misconceptions combined together to, you can see, this would really begin to affect and influence people that were in the church. Now we want to read together uh, a text that we read last week, and it will also bring us into a little bit later, we'll talk about uh, the text as it goes into chapter 2. So if you would, uh, just read in your Bibles, your devices, or you may follow along on the screen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. These misconceptions now, does it connect? You kind of connect why he's saying what he's saying? He goes on to say, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, if, you're, if you have a scripture that you can underline or you can highlight on your device, highlight that phrase at the end of verse 18, because that is the summary statement that is basically the whole book of Colossians in one phrase right there. That so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God, verse 19, was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. How many of you can relate to that? Say amen. Some of y'all acting very righteous today. I mean, it says you once were that way. I didn't say today. Once you were alienated from God, right? Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now this text breaks up into two very natural passages, two arguments, rather, two natural sections. Number one, he's speaking about the supremacy of Christ in creation. Secondly, he makes an argument for the supremacy of Christ over the new creation or the church. That's you and me. And so let's look at how he argues for both of these. First of all, he is... Jesus Christ is supreme and preeminent over his creation. We see that in verses 15 through 17. There are four truths about Jesus in these verses. Number one, there's a statement that's very clear, and it simply says he is God. He simply is God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is God. Paul doesn't mince any words here at all. He simply says, Jesus is the image of an invisible God. You want to know what God's like? Look at him. He is God. As powerful uh, as sometimes in life we use symbols for things and, and they represent something. So for example, this ring on my finger represents what? That I'm married. That's right. Carrie lets me know anytime it 
It happens to be put off my finger for 30 seconds. She reminds me what it represents. So it, even though it's symbolic, it also represents something. But, but my ring, having a ring, doesn't make me married. Right? It's simply a symbol that I'm married. And so listen very carefully. Jesus is not just a symbol of God. He is God himself. He is the essence of God. He is God in human flesh. It's very interesting here that he uses a word when it says here in verse, uh, in verse uh, 15, the first part, he is the image of an invisible God. The word there, image, comes from the Greek word icon. that interesting? The, where we obviously get iconic and icon today comes from the Greek word icon. And that day, in the day in which they use this language, in the days of the Bible, uh, an icon was simply a, like a stamp or uh, an image that is left by a die or a stamp in which they wanted to make sure that they left that representation there. Today I was thinking about trying to contemporize this concept, and I thought maybe the best way to explain it is this. Some of you, I'm sure many of you, uh, have... Uh, obtain some kind of an electronic signature. So in other words, you, I have an app on my phone that allows me to, to scan documents or things and then convert it into a really nice, clear, for example, a signature. So I could take a photograph, if you will, of my signature, and now legal documents I can actually use. Uh, we just got through refinancing our home, and I was able to do almost, almost everything electronically. Using what? My electronic signature. Why? Because the concept of icon means it is a, it is a distinguishing mark of, who, of you. It's something that represents as clearly as you can who you are. Well, that signature is me. So if that signature, that is even though it's electronic, it is there, it's transmitted, it's saying that is Bobby Hill. And so because of it, uh, it, it allows us to, to understand this word a little bit more. It refers to the likeness or the replica of Jesus Christ was an image of God himself. But he was more than just an image. He was God. Amen? We notice that the visible, he, he is the vis, image of the invisible God. He is a precise copy of God because why? Because he was God himself. All right, we notice in John chapter 14, verse 9, uh, we see it says, anyone who has seen me, Jesus said, has what? Have you seen me? You've seen the Father. You want to see the Father? Look at me. Why? Same thing. Hebrews 1 also emphasizes, saying, the Son, speaking of Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Once again, exact representation is for the word, the Greek word icon. So it's again, it's telling us what? Jesus is God. But the second truth we see is that not only is God, he's also the unique son of God. Notice the last part of verse 15, and it says that he is the firstborn over all creation. He's not only God, but he is the unique son of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Remember, we're talking about the fact that he's supreme over what? Over everything that's created. He is the firstborn of all creation, and literally the idea of firstborn there refers to a title of honor. It refers to position. It doesn't refer, this use of the word firstborn, does not refer to chronological order. 
but it refers he is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is in charge of all creation. He is the ranking one, the supreme one. So we see that he is the unique son of God. Number three, it tells us that he is the creator of all things. I, you know what's amazing? I was talking to someone this week about this, and, and we were talking about how that frequently we don't usually think of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the role of creator. Many times we somehow in our minds, and we know that, that, that God is one, and he has these three clear, distinct aspects, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's one God, but he expresses himself in these ways, but they're also distinct. And they're indivisible, but yet they are distinguishable. And therefore, we have the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how many of you ever really think about Jesus Christ as a part of the creation team? We don't usually do that. Somehow, we just think he, he kind of, he just shows up later. The Bible teaches us that he was preexistent. Jesus was a part of creation. So Jesus Christ is as much the creator as God the Father. How do we know that? The scripture here tells us. He explains, he says, all things were created in, through, and for Christ. You see, not only is he the image of God, he's the exalted one over all creation. Why? Because he was the creator. He is a creator. And that ought to speak to us loudly the fact the fact he is supreme. He's not just a mere man. Don't listen to these crazy philosophies that get thrown about that he's just a mere man. He's the creator of all things. Those things that you can see, and I like the fact how this particular part of the scripture in verse 16 goes into things that you can see, things that you can't see, everything, whether it's invisible or whether it's visible. Everything... Heaven and earth that were created were created by and through and for Jesus Christ. Wow. He is the sovereign creator. Amen? So we see that he is the creator of all things. Verse 17 tells us that this is the last truth we learn here about the fact that he's supreme over all creation. He was what? It says that everything was hold, held together because of him. He upholds all things. You've got to just stop for a second and think about this. I want you to just make sure you get this. Listen to what the scripture says. <clears throat> it says, he, uh, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Things, what's he talking about? All created things. So all crazy things, just stop and start making a list in your mind. That's human flesh. That's the creation you can see. That, would, would that might include the solar system. Would that maybe include the laws of the universe? The law of gravity? How things work? Which scientifically, you know, we... These, we have a greater understanding of how they work, but maybe what many don't ever calculate is the place that Jesus Christ holds in keeping everything on its course. He is upholding. Literally, the idea there in the original language means he's holding everything cohesively together. Take him away. Just imagine for a moment. Talk about a crazy movie, right? Take him away, what happens? 
cataclysmic. Everything begins to fall apart. Everything in creation begins to fall apart. Everything that is created, visible, invisible, what a crazy, crazy day that would be. But thank God it's not going to happen. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the one who sustains. He is the one that holds all things together. In John chapter 8, uh, verse 58, uh, Jesus said this, Before Abraham was born, I am. Christ is before all things. Yes, both in time and rank. And he not only created the world, but he is the cohesion that keeps it all together. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, which tells us that, this, that he holds everything together, that creation is held together by the word of his power. Shows you the power of his word. If it weren't for the power of his word, stuff would just start spinning out of control. Planets would go crazy. Everything would be thrown into utter chaos if it weren't for Jesus Christ holding all things together. And once again, the fact that he's supreme over the universe, which is the, the argument that he's making here, he's supreme over his creation. But that's not enough. Paul loves to layer his arguments, okay? So now, he says, in addition to that, he's also supreme over what? The church, his new creation. And he begins to take off on that. So let's just look at his arguments for that. He is, he is first of all, preeminent because he is the head of the church. Verse 18 and 19. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and he is the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all of his fullness to dwell in him. So the first thing we notice is he's head of the church. What does it mean? It means that it, it, it is not the senior pastor that's the true head of the church. It's not an, a bishop. It's not an apostle. It's not a pope. Forgive me, everybody, who has sensibilities that I've just defended, all right? But Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is number one. Everything initiates should initiate from him he not only directs but he himself is the head he qualifies only jesus qualifies to be the head the word head here means that he is the authority he is the source of the church think about it, what it what it means uh if it everything about our bodily function is dictated from where right here cut the head off too late right Everything from right here, suggesting now that our, our body is a picture of the church, the body of Christ. Who's the head of it? Jesus Christ. By the way, he's the head of the universal church, but he also ought to be the head of every local church. Amen. He is the head of the church. Um, and I think we can relate to that when we think about the body. Remember, if Jesus Christ is not supreme in a church, frankly, I'm not sure that is a church. It might be an organization but I'm not sure it is really the church. That's what I think. That was part of the problem going on in Colossae. They had lost connection to Christ as their head. Later, he's going to rebuke them again for this, and he says, you've not been holding fast to the head. This will be in a later chapter. You haven't been holding fast to the head. What happens? When you're not holding fast to the head, you slide, slip, erode in your relationship. 
You're not getting direction from the head. He's not inspiring your behavior, your activity. Your life is going astray. You're no longer living pure lives for God. No, your behavior is getting weird. Why? You're not holding fast to who really counts, who is the head, Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Number two, Jesus is the source of the church. Verse 18 simply says this, He is the beginning. He is the beginning. Meaning what? Means he is the source. The word actually comes from two different words, which in the original language mean to rule and to begin. To rule and to begin. So what he's saying is, when it says he's the beginning, it's saying, yes, he is the beginning. There was no church without Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and being raised from the dead. But in addition to that, he now rules. Matthew 16 says what? I will build my church. He never had any problem saying, it's my church. And by the way, it's going to be a victorious church. Amen? I will build my church. He's the builder. He's the designer. And today, he should rule over it. Thirdly, he should be, he is supreme over the church. In what way? Well, three things are mentioned here. The phrase is used here again. He is the firstborn. This one says, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from among the dead, signifying, listen, signifying that he as the supreme one, his resurrection is the guarantee, not only that he is who he said he was, not only to guarantee that, but it also guarantees a future resurrection for all of us and all those who have died in Christ. Someone ought to say hallelujah. I mean, you're going to be resurrected from the dead one day. That's, by the way, a subject you ask Christians about. They go, I don't know about what's happening. And they don't understand that. But it's listed in Hebrews 6 as one of the basic foundational doctrines of the church. Resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. Give Christians a test on that, they all flunk. I promise you, people don't understand about that. We don't have good theology when it comes to that. But it is true. Jesus is firstborn from the dead. Meaning what? He is the supreme one. And he will rise. uh, We will rise again with him. Also, not only that he's the firstborn from the dead, but it also suggests that he is the fullness of God. Look back in the passage, and it says this in verse 19. I love this. It gives God the Father great joy and pleasure to have all of his fullness in Jesus, dwell in Jesus. May I, may I, I'm not trying to impress you with knowing Greek language today. I know only enough to get myself in real trouble from time to time. But the word fullness there is really important. In fact, it's, it's the Greek word pleroma. And it was a word that a technical term that the false teachers had been using. So he picks up on that and he uses it to set things straight and in order. And he says that God is delighted, has great joy, that all of his fullness, think this, the fullness or the completeness, everything that makes God God, he was pleased to have it to dwell where? In Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make him supreme? Doesn't that fly in the face of the thought that says, well, everything here is natural, in the natural realm is evil, so Jesus couldn't be God. And what's Paul doing? He's confronting and combating all that false teaching. He is supreme over the church. The fullness of God dwells in him. It wasn't around him, not just upon him or under him. Rather, it was what? In him. It took up residence 
in him. So the summary is this. Jesus is not just a simply a sketch of God. He is not just a remote representation of God. He is not just a summary statement about God. He is more than a lifeless portrait. He is the final and full revelation of God. Let's make sure we never veer from that. That argument is based upon uh, that point is based on two arguments. He is supreme over his creation. He's also supreme over what? His new creation. All right, now y'all ready to go to the next section with me? We're moving on today. All right, let's read from beginning in verse 24. We're going to read through chapter 2 and verse 7. This is Colossians chapter 1, and this speaks of the ministry of Paul, the ministry of Paul. So we finished that particular section about the supremacy of Christ. Now we're going to, he shifts over to talk about his own ministry. So what can we learn from this? First of all, let's read the text. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant. Whose servant? The church. Speaking of the church. I become its servant by the commission God gave me to do what? To present to you the word of God in all of its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to God's people. Put it on pause a second because I won't mention this again. The word mystery is a very interesting word, the mysterion. It means something was once hidden, but has now been revealed. Once hidden, but now Revealed. So he talks here about the mystery that has been kept hidden for all generations. And now through my ministry, I'm helping to disclose this to God's people. And he says in verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's in you. Just turn to them right now. You say, well, I don't know if he's in them. By faith, just say it anyway. He's in you. All right, verse 28. Paul says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously, the NIV says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, I think you can see what is Paul talking about in these verses? He's talking about his ministry, talking about what he does. And so I thought it would be very helpful for us just to break this down and for me to mention to you a couple of points that this section clearly makes. I think I have four points to make. Yeah, four points very quickly. Number one, He speaks of the ministry of suffering. Now, clearly, this is not something Christians today want to talk about. I don't know when, uh, Gary, I saw the last conference that was well attended that that featured the subject of suffering. We're going to have a conference on suffering. Everybody come and sign up. It's real cheap, but just come. It's going to be on suffering. How many of y'all think we would not have very much of an attendance? Do you know what I'm talking about? 
might just be the presenter, all right? Because no one, Christians, they, they don't want to talk about suffering. But Paul never hesitated to talk about his suffering. Now, I know people who suffer for the wrong stuff. But Paul was suffering for the right stuff. You can look at it in verse 24. What's he saying? Now, I'm rejoicing. Now, that's a pretty good attitude, wouldn't you agree? He said, I'm rejoicing in what I am suffering for you. What kind of suffering is he speaking of? You've got to remember, where, when is this being written? About 60 AD. Where is Paul writing it from? Prison. He's been interrogated. He's being persecuted. He's in prison for the faith and for everything that he's done. He's simply referring. He's not trying to get pity. He's simply acknowledging, I'm rejoicing in what I'm suffering. Remember, he's never met these people. But he's declaring to them, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. I'm doing my part here, and I'm suffering. And Paul did suffer in many different ways as he explores and extrapolates in, in other letters, particularly to the church at Corinth. But here, he doesn't hesitate at all to talk about his sufferings. And he says he does it for the sake of the church. So first of all is the ministry of suffering that Paul mentions. Secondly is the ministry of the word. This is a very important section here. He speaks of the ministry of the word. Listen to what it says. I become its servant, the church, by the commission God gave me. So we, we've already learned from actually Colossians 1.1 1, 1, that Paul was writing them as what? An apostle, one sent from God, one with a message, right? So he already is speaking of his authority to speak this. He says, I have a commission. I'm a servant, but I have a commission God gave me. And what is my commission? What have I been sent to do? What is my primary deal to do? To present to you the word of God in all of its fullness. I remember years ago, uh, my personal mentor and pastor since he's been my pastor since 1972 it's a long time i'm delighted that he's going to come and speak to you on the last sunday of april all right so uh he's he's coming and he's i think he's about 75 but he's still full of the word of god many times during my years of ministry when i was at any point of transition he would frequently say to me, whether in person or by phone or whatever, he'd say, now, Bobby, you can do a lot of other stuff. I know you can do it well. There's a lot of stuff. I want you to remember one thing. Preach and teach the Word of God. He would always bring me back. And he'd say, don't, don't ever let up on proclaiming, teaching, admonishing, teaching, and preaching God's word that's the only thing that will really make a difference in people's lives and i thought that has just held me like an anchor through all these years that that's really the main thing we have to offer that's what paul is saying here he's saying it's the ministry of the word as he proclaimed to them this this great word that he's teaching them now he then he then breaks it down he says there's three ways that he provides this ministry first of all he talks about proclaiming it or the preaching of the word. Here is the idea of preaching. The it focuses primarily on a positive message 
giving the good news of Christ and the word of God, but sharing it in a positive way, declaring it to the Gentiles. That's the preaching he's talking about. How many of you know there is a little bit of difference between a preacher and a teacher? Only six hands went up. All right. Paul says later, and when he's writing to Timothy, he identifies himself and he says, I'm an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher. So he wouldn't say that if there wasn't some difference. And I always find it interesting in some of my preaching classes to ask the students, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Man, ideas, their ideas all over the map about the difference. But just understand, it's not just style. But it, uh, preaching has to do with the broadcasting and the proclamation of God's word. And it is style-wise, it is delivered a little bit differently. But that's what he's speaking of here when he mentions preaching. Then he mentions a very intriguing word. Uh, I think the NIV uses the word admonishing. What are some other words that are used there? Pre, uh, pre- preaching, what else? Proclaiming and what through? Uh, anybody else have a different word in your translations? You're not even looking at your translation. You're just looking at me, aren't you? All right. That's all right. There, there are several different words that are in tr- different translations are used. NIV says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. The word here for admonishing is a very interesting word. And it, it, it's the word neothetes, and it literally means counseling. Coming alongside of someone and providing positive, affirmative, even corrective counseling. So from time to time, we all need some counsel. We all need someone who can, that it's Bible based, but who can say, you know, have you ever thought about tweaking this in your marriage? This might help you. Someone's dumping their problem here and telling you about this and say, well, this is what God says. Maybe you ought to consider this bit of wisdom or this. What is it? It's biblical. Paul said we proclaim Christ, but we also do it through what? The admonishing, through admonishing. And we can actually admonish one another. doesn't have to be an hour-long counseling session for it to fit admonishment. And you don't have to have a doctor of psychology, as some are blessed to have, in order to admonish. But it needs to be what? Based on what? The Word of God. I'm so thankful for Christian therapists and Christian uh, counselors and those who are properly trained to be able to know how to admonish and counsel using the Word of God, but also things that have been learned. I'm so thankful for that. Paul, I guarantee you, Paul did a lot of this admonishing stuff. Now, he says, in addition to that, also teach. What does teaching have to do with it? It's a word that literally means the imparting of truth. God's word is truth, and teachers do what? They just break it down. Here's the truth. Here's how to help you understand it. And here's what it means. It is the impartation of positive, helpful truth from God's word. How many appreciate good teaching? All right. So then he wraps it all up by saying, number three, all right, this is, this is my ministry. By the way, it's a good ministry for, all, for the church to have today. Would you agree? Not everybody's going to be gifted to do everything Paul could do. Y'all understand that? But you would agree that the church, the body of Christ, should be doing this stuff? All right. Then he looks away and says, now here's the goal of it all. He says, I do all that. I preach, I counsel, I teach for one reason. He is the one we proclaim. 
admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that what? Underline that, so that. So that we might present who? Only an elite few people. No, no, no. That's what some of the false teachers were saying. No, so we might present everyone what? Fully mature in Christ. That's his goal. What an incredible aim and goal of ministry. I want to present everyone I can have any influence over. I want to help present them. It's not just a matter of getting people born again. That's so important, right? That gives them the citizenship in heaven. But he said, no, it's more than that. I want to help them to grow up. It's time Christians today grow up. He said, I want to present them fully mature in Christ. The word there literally means fully grown. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not fully grown yet. Anybody here fully grown? We all have room to grow, right? We all have things that God straightened out in our life. We're all still disciples of Jesus, and we're all still on a journey. But the idea, Paul says, is I have in mind, I, my vision, I see it out there. My objective is, is I'm either winning this person, or I'm counseling this person, or I'm teaching this young church. My goal is what? I want to present everybody fully mature in Christ. Whew, what an incredible goal. One more point, and I'm done this morning. He gives us a secret that you need to get a hold of because it's applicable in your life. I don't know about you, but I read that section. I get tired just reading. Man, how? Paul, and he's saying this from prison. He's saying this in chains. He's saying this having already admitted he's been suffering. It, it makes me feel tired. I think I need a nap after I just read this, what he's doing. But he gives us a secret. Look at that final verse. This is what he says. Presenting everyone fully mature in Christ, verse 29. To this end, so he just affirms that that, that was the end goal, right? To this end, I strenuously contend. The King James simply says, I labor. Labor doesn't do justice, all right, to this word. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The word there sometimes translated labor is a Greek word that simply means that it means heavy work where you work to the point of exhaustion. See, so just saying work isn't enough. Someone say, well, I just got back from work and they may not have done a whole lot of labor. They checked their time card and checked it again and said, okay, I've just been to work. Maybe, right? But there's a different thing. If you've been to work and you were like giving everything you had, and I mean with every ounce of energy in your body and strenuously, you were working really, really hard to the point of being totally exhausted. Most of us have worked that hard at some point in our life, right? No. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. Home, at the marketplace. But if you haven't worked that hard, I've got some chores. Y'all can come help me out. All right. That's what it means to do this kind of labor. Now watch what he says. This is hard work. But then he tells us the secret of where the energy comes to do it. He says, there's something on the inside of me. He said, I've got this thing that God, this energy he calls it, that God through Christ 
powerfully works in me. So he's saying it's from God. There's something when you're engaged in what God's assignments are in your life, you can expect a supernatural energy to come through you. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. Yes, I understand there's the importance of time and the toll that it takes. But here we see Paul telling us there's an energy source that can come from the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. And it can so energize me that I can rise up to the occasion, do the work that God's given me to do. And every single one of us, just like Paul, has the same source. Same source. And we need to give him glory for that. Would you stand with me today? Wow, Paul had quite a ministry there. And it's a great lesson for us to apply in our own lives, in our own churches. Amen? I want to pray for you. Uh, this morning, actually, I want you to receive prayer, but I'm, I'm going to ask Chris to come and to do it. But I want you to seriously uh, uh, weigh out what God has spoken through his word today. Whether it be the place that Christ has in your life or something else, the Holy Spirit just quickened you. And I want you to be responsive in your heart to Chris when he prays. And I'm just going to go ahead and invite the ministry teams, prayer teams to come forward. So they're in place and in position, ready to pray with you. So Chris, you come, pray for us, and then dismiss us on this note. Echoing what <clears throat> Pastor's saying, um, I want to I want to really encourage you to take action, right? So if there's something that has been prompted in your spirit or in your mind, there's something we've, that's been touched on today, I want you to come forward. I mean, they're, they're, they're all pretty, but they're not just pretty. They're up here to pray for you and to agree with you, right? We know from Matthew that if we agree together, God will do the things that we're praying for. These are people that know how to get hold of heaven. So if you have a need, you want agreement, whatever that is. Um, and then the other thing I would say real quickly is, pastor's talking about contending and laboring and and finding the source of, of the energy of your spiritual life, that happens, one of the places that happens here at this church is in journey groups. So I want to make sure that today's the last day to sign up. Make sure that you take those journey group and you, because what's going to happen in those groups is you're going to get fashioned more and more into the image of Christ. That's where these promises start to get fleshed out and start to actually become real to you and become daily practice. So plug in somewhere. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for the beauty of your word. And we pray that it would go deep in our hearts and the seeds that are sown in our hearts today would produce fruit. And we thank you for the goodness of who you are and that you're building your church so that we could see Christ in us as our hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.